Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Our show is produced by Algman Business Media, where we make having your own video podcast as easy as joining a video call and sending an email. At Algman Business Media, the stage is yours. Today on Data Leadership Lessons, we welcome Doug Laney. Doug is a well-known thought leader on data and analytics strategy. He is the originator of the field of infonomics and is the author of the best-selling book, Infonomics, How to Monetize, Manage, and Measure Information for Competitive Advantage. Doug is the Data and Analytics Strategy Innovation Fellow with the consultancy West Monroe. Doug, welcome to the show. It's been a long time coming. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be with you. So like we do with all of our first-time guests, would you please take a moment to tell the audience a bit more about your career and, and how it led to the creation of Infonomics and everything else that you're doing these days? Yeah, well, I actually started my career at Arthur Anderson back in the day before it was, uh, even before it was Anderson Consulting and, you know, of course, before it was Accenture. And uh, now I'm with West Monroe, which kind of feels like coming home because uh, West Monroe was um, formed by some former Arthur Anderson uh, consultants. So... Um, Great firm, very happy to very happy to be here. Uh, really innovative, and and that's you know one of the reasons I joined is uh, West Monroe is a great a great platform for doing some really innovative things around around data and analytics. Um, so I spent a you know, number of years at at, at Arthur Anderson uh, or Anderson Consulting, and then got into the software industry a, a, a number of years and some of the early uh, pioneering expert systems, artificial intelligence uh, type companies where I did some. Um, uh, knowledge work there, and then uh, got pulled into data warehousing, which I thought was kind of boring, but uh, ended up finding it to be pretty pretty exciting field, uh, building um, large, well, at the time large, we wouldn't call them large today, <laughs> data warehouses <laughs> for, uh, for for major companies. I got a chance to uh, to move to Australia with one of the companies I was with and, and run the Asia Pacific business there. Um, while I was there, I started doing some more speaking and writing and uh, at one of the events, uh, I think at a DCI conference, if you remember those, uh, somebody came up to me after I spoke and he said, hey, did you come up with those slides yourself? And I said, well, yeah, why? I was talking about data warehousing methodology. Um, and uh, he said, do you want to join uh, Metagroup, which was a spinoff of Gartner at the time, which got reabsorbed by Gartner later on? I said, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> so I'm moving back to the U.S. I ended up joining uh, Metagroup. And uh, spent uh, the better part of 12 years at um, at uh, Meta and, and Gartner as a research analyst and advisor, uh, doing a lot of speaking and writing. And the, the second time I, I joined Gartner, I said, listen, I've been working on this idea about data as an actual corporate asset. Um, and they said, well, well, what do you mean? I said, well, back at Meta Group um, was during the 9-11 terror attacks and some clients um, in the Twin Towers, you know, lost their data. They lost their, their uh, they didn't know who their customers were anymore. You know, the data was all on-site, uh, you know, on-prem and without off-site backups. And so these companies didn't know who their customers were. They didn't know who their employees were. They lost their contracts. They lost, it became a real existential uh, event for them. And not to be callous, but, you know, they, they told me, they said, you know, you know, we, we definitely mourn, obviously mourn the, the loss of, of some of our employees, but, um, you know, we can hire more employees. We just can't get our data back. It's gone. And so what um, they did was submit claims to their insurers for the value of the data they lost. 
and the insurers said, you know, sorry, we don't consider data to be property, therefore we're not going to cover it as part of your, your, your PNC uh, policies. So that really got my attention and I got to thinking about, well, isn't data property? Isn't it an asset? Um, why not? I helped some of the businesses in the Twin Towers value their data so that they could kind of determine what their, their loss was. Um, and then got to thinking more about, you know, if data is an asset, then, you know, why isn't it on the balance sheet? And uh, and and what does that mean to organizations because they don't measure data as an actual asset? Does that a, is that is that really why so many companies don't really manage their data with the same kind of discipline as the way they manage their other assets? Um, and then I said, well, why do you manage any asset? You manage any asset so that you can generate um, value from it. You know, the old adage is you can't manage what you don't measure, um, and that you can't. Uh, I think you know it follows that you can't you can't monetize what you're not managing well. And that's really the core of, of Infonomics is about getting companies to measure their data so that they can get the support um, budgets, resources that they need to manage it like an actual asset uh, and then put them in a better position to generate uh, optimal economic value from it. So that's the, uh, the, the crux of the book. Uh, Gartner supported me in writing the book and, and publishing it. And it was, it's been uh, very well received. And, then I got to know the folks at West Monroe and, and they said, listen, we, we want to build a practice based on, you know, these concepts. And I said, well, I guess I've had enough just talking about it at Gartner. Um, it's enough to actually put it into practice. And so uh, I joined uh, West Monroe exactly a year ago today. Oh, congratulations. And in yeah. full disclosure, I did work for West Monroe for a period of time in the early 2010s. And so I know that organization well, still have a lot of friends over there. Um, really excited to see what, what you all yeah. are doing and, and, and how it's um, how that's progressing. Yeah. I remember great a year people, ago when I had heard great culture. that uh, West Monroe had brought you on. It, it, was, yeah. it was great. It's a great culture, great people. It's super inclusive, uh, um, collaborative, supportive even egalitarian, like everybody's voice matters at West Monroe. It's not, it's not like some of the other, I won't name names, uh, consulting firms that I've, I've been with. Yeah. Well, and the, the energy I think is, is, is really um, impressive and, and that fits yeah. your, um, your style very well. I, I know. So Thanks. I want to talk a little bit about this, uh, the, the, the concept fundamentally of, of data as an asset, because I think mm -hmm. that clearly it resonates around, it has, you know, data clearly has real value. You're, you're preaching to the choir in this audience of, you know, data right. as an asset, um, you know, having real value, but there's mm -hmm. obviously a you very must not big be an difference. Accountant, then. <laughs> the accountants well, don't agree well i mean yeah we i don't know we have some accountants in the audience i'm sure um uh, of the show but definitely um have uh you know a lot of folks who who build their careers working with data and i think that's become even more prevalent uh these days where most businesses have a substantial investment in what they're doing with data uh, because they see the value in it and and i think that um you know that that's something that we can we can treat as a as a as a mm -hmm. assumption at this point but i think what what i'm curious about and and you know i know the book you know talks about this some is is assets typically are something you consume and then they go away whereas with data in in many ways if you use it and do things with it, you actually create additional value and additional data, and it almost works backwards to the consumption of regular assets. Can you talk about that dynamic mm -hmm. and how that's so unique and, and interesting with the data space? Sure. You know, it's hard, it's hard to go a day or a week or a month without hearing somebody talk about data as being the the, the, the new oil, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 
while that certainly reflects an understanding or appreciation that data is a driver of the economy at a macro level, the way oil perhaps was at the, you know, uh, early in the, you know, or later in the industrial revolution. But um, it, it misses the point, like you say, that data has these unique economic characteristics that data that, that oil doesn't have. You know, when you consume a drop of oil, you can only consume it one way at a time. Right. And when you consume a drop of oil, it turns into heat, energy, you know, and, and pollutants. Um, and that when you consume a drop of oil, like, like you say, it doesn't create more oil, it doesn't create more, you know, uh, um, of some kind of asset. And so uh, data is very unique that way. It's what economists would call a non-rivalrous, meaning you can use it multiple ways simultaneously, non-depleting, doesn't go away when you use it, and a, a, a the progenitive asset, meaning it creates more of some more of itself when you use it. And uh, the companies that are really thriving in the digital economy, data economy, whatever you want to call it today, are the ones who are taking advantage of that. In fact, Jeff Bezos has a uh, Bezos has a, um, a, word, a term for that. He calls it you know a flywheel effect. So as you know, people understand this kind of reinforcing behavior that that data has, mm -hmm. is that relevant to the work we do with data or does it even matter is is is, is, is data work directly influenced by this economic function and should we mm -hmm. be paying more attention to that than maybe our, our data uh, administrators and, and data analysts uh, typically do yeah i think that's where the measurement part come comes in um according to your current accounting standards um, you can no longer capitalize or, or recognize the value of your company's data on your balance sheet Right. So that puts a lot of companies into a bit of a quandary. Okay, we've got this this thing we're calling an asset, but it, according to accountants, it's not really an asset. And therefore, you know, how do we get the budgets and resources that and support that we need to actually treat it like an asset? You know, interestingly, after nine eleven, um, the uh, insurance industry realized it was a bit exposed, and uh, it updated the commercial general liability policy template used by all insurers for their, their uh, to, uh, and they, so they updated the template to explicitly exclude um, data from PNC policies. They did that a month after 9-11. Hmm. And then not to be outdone, the accountants said, oh, if uh, the insurance industry isn't going to recognize data as an asset and the courts are confused on the matter, I'll talk about that in a moment, then um, we can't recognize it as, a, as an asset. So they updated a key fi financial standard, um, FAS or IAS 38, which deals with how to recognize intangibles um, to, to expressly say that um, your data can't be capitalized. The courts, like I said, are confused on the matter. Some courts have fallen on the side of, uh, you know, w where there have been cases related to data being misused or damaged or stolen, or um, the courts sometimes have, have issued rulings along the lines of, data constituting property um, because it can be represented by bubbles on an optical disc or it can be printed. Other courts have said, well, since electrons have negligible mass, <laughs> um, uh, data shouldn't be considered property. So yeah. that's the kind of crazy, confusing world we live in. And you know, if you look for, to the government for some help, there really hasn't been a lot of help other than in privacy regulations. In fact, there was a U.S. I wrote about this in the book, the a U.S. Senate subcommittee hearing on how to evolve a 1930s style accounting system to the 21st century. So why, why 1930s? Well, that's when the asset classes were defined by the SEC coming out of the Great Depression um, to formalize you know, financial reporting a bit more. And at that time, it was before the information age. So 
there was no really real reason to think about data as a separate kind of asset. It was all in books and magazines and ledgers and so forth. So, um, you know, here we are 90 years later in the accounting profession, um, the courts, insurance companies, the government haven't come around to fully acknowledging data as property or as, uh, or as uh, an asset. Well, and, and what's interesting is I think about the data management hats that we often mm-hmm. wear and, and with data governance is that a lot of those activities tend to be um, driven by data as a liability as much as data as an asset because of uh, yeah. the governor, you know, the GDPR and CCPA and like mm-hmm. the privacy concerns and all that. People see, oh, right. data is a big risk, but and then it's also an asset. Is this is this unique to data yeah. too? Or are there other yeah. assets that that parallel that as both? I, I think they're they're the energy um, mm-hmm. analogy can apply where you know you have a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Are you creating a battery? Or are you creating a bomb? You know. And yeah. so here's where we get into a little syntactic um, uh, conundrum, which is when people say liability, they often mean risk. Mm. But in an accounting sense, a liability is something that you owe someone else. Very true. Very true. uh, Okay. So if we're mixing and matching the term liability and asset, we should be talking about liability and accounting terminology, which is something you owe someone else. Data is very rarely, if ever, something that you owe someone else. Um, But in in, in common vernacular, you know, liability is a risk. Okay. So yes, data can pose a a risk. Um, Just having it poses a risk, you know, using it improperly or handling it improperly poses a risk, but not a, not a balance sheet liability. Right. Well, I appreciate that clarification because I do think, especially those of us who are not as deep in accounting will often make that kind of linguistic slip and confuse the accountants where they think very literally. And this is, this is a consulting thing where you have words that you may use in a more colloquial way that, Mm people have very loaded meanings to. I once said in an energy meeting, I was working with an energy company and I actually made a point around how this thing that we wanted to do was a, was a critical decision to make. And as soon as I said critical, their eyes lit up and they're like, what do you mean critical? And I'm like, oh, what oh. have I stumbled into? Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. actually connoted a, a critical infrastructure, which is a specialized mm-hmm. term in the energy mm-hmm. space. Yep. And I will never forget that as long as I live <laughs> because I, it was just me being me, right. you know, doing that. And and I mentioned critical and the entire tone of the room changed. And I, I learned yeah. my lesson that day. So language is important. And, um, you know, that kind of gets us to the topic of data literacy being being critical as well. Um, getting people not only to understand, you know, that business terminology, but uh, the, the glossary and, and concepts around, around data. We've been doing a lot of work lately um, setting up data literacy programs for organizations. And it's not just a matter of generic training them on, you know, BI terminology and, and stuff. What is a pie chart versus a bar chart versus a line chart, you know, um, but um, really embedding it into their organization. And, but it all starts with language, ensuring that, that, that there's a common set of vernacular in the way that we talk about data within an organization. You know, I, it gets me thinking as, as we get older and our colleagues tend to get younger, we, um, we know that these, uh, the, the younger generation has grown up with a deeper technology sophistication as consumers uh, versus older generations. There's just a natural comfort there. But what I found, and I'm curious what your perspective is, is that just because we are sophisticated consumers on our personal lives or, or in our even our work lives, it doesn't necessarily mean we have all of the tools necessary to be data literate and to be effective data creators or data stewards 
as we have to take on these responsibilities for these data assets. Do you think that the yeah. way we deliver data literacy today has changed as a result of that? And and would you even first agree with the um, kind of hypotheses that I that I'm throwing out there? Yeah, the, for the first hypothesis was that, you know, the, the digital natives, right, um, are much more comfortable with the concept of handling and using data and uh, and privacy and all that. I would say, yeah, pro probably, probably so. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also tend to be a, more, a bit more casual with it. You know, as long as you're not doing anything bad, right, um, then it doesn't really matter what, what you post or how you handle your personal data too much. Mm -hmm. um, and, and most digital natives have found a way to generate benefits from sharing and exposing their data, right? And that could translate into the business world. I, I would, I would, uh, I would uh, suppose um, individuals who are comfortable with sharing their browsing habits or whatever in order to get better offers, you know, that, that certainly can translate into the into the business world. I mean, we even see when you go into the grocery store, you scan your your loyalty card. And you get a discount for you know on your on your groceries, right? But you know we know it's really happening, and probably uh, I would imagine digital natives also you know 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 what's what's happening, which is it's really a barter transaction. You're exchanging information about you and your purchase for for free food for some free food. Um, we don't call it a barter transaction because that doesn't feel good to us, right? Discount <laughs> feels much much better, right? And it glosses over what's actually happening with our data. But that kind of um, that kind of scenario is happening much more in the B2B world and the kind of thing that, that we at West Monroe are, are helping our clients with, which is to monetize their data in a, in a broader um, broader amount of ways. And that does take a degree of, of literacy, helping them mm -hmm. understand what are the different patterns of data monetization? What are the different ways that you can generate economic value from data? And even you mentioned GDPR, right? So GDPR makes, and the California Consumer uh, Pro uh, uh, Protection Act, um, limits to some degree what you can do with your your customer data right. but it doesn't mean that you can't monetize it anymore so when clients have come to us and said right we can't monetize our customer data because of these regulations i said well you haven't really thought about it creatively enough right let's mm -hmm. flip that model on its head you know you can't sell your data to others but you could sell other stuff to your customers without ever exposing who those customers are so i refer to that as an inverted data monetization model. So like we're working with a hospital who knows who its diabetes patients are, right? We can't sell that data or even share that data with anyone, but it can share others uh, offerings and products and services like healthy meal plans or gym memberships or at home glucose monitoring test kits. They can share that with their own customers, their own you know, members and, and patients. Um, and take a cut of that action, right, without ever exposing who those people are. So, yeah, well, it, it definitely is something that we've talked about on the show before around mm -hmm. there's different layers of data granularity or aggregation that start to trigger different levels of privacy or scrutiny or, or regulatory or, or what have you. And, and to your earlier point, like some of those systems are a little bit behind uh, to be generous on on where they are compared to the complexity of data. And that'll lead me to a, another question in a moment. Uh, but it, it, it makes me recall, I had, a, I had another pair of headphones uh, that I had mm -hmm. and that broke. 
uh, the other day. One of the earpieces just stopped working. And I'm like, okay, well, let me go look where I bought that from. And I went to the internet site that they had had. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, let me see if there's a warranty on these things. Because I think I got them about a year ago. And been, they've been great. But this thing is just weird. They just stopped working. And so I went and looked at the, the website, found the order, found the, um, uh, the headphones. And I hadn't been to that website in a long time. And I mm -hmm. noticed after I had... And, to their credit, they gave me a, a warranty replacement. I've got to go ship them back and all that. But mm -hmm. I noticed that from literally that afternoon and for the next several days, I have been seeing advertisements for those headphones that I went to, uh, that I already own, that I that are just popping up all over the internet for me now. It's like, you really should look at these headphones. Yeah, and I'm like, wait a second. And then if I'll say the, the cart reminders and, mm -hmm. and things like that, I didn't put mm -hmm. it in the cart, but they're like, you, you were looking at these. You really should consider buying these. These are great. And I'm like, this is where you're almost at this line of, stepping over this creepy factor of like yeah. data getting a little bit weird mm -hmm. in how they're they're reacting to me because mm -hmm. i'm in a you like my situation is a little bit outside and they know of you the already norm. bought these and they know that you already returned them why would they be trying to sell you the same thing over and over again that happens to me all the time and yeah. I, I think it's uh there's some some bad data science going on there there is well and it just shows that we're still a bit in the infancy mm -hmm. of the um the right. logic behind how they're doing these things there's like oh we yeah. saw eyeballs on this thing let's go market it to mm -hmm. them it, right, it reminds right. me when i bought i bought a uh humidifier just a room mm -hmm. humidifier from amazon mm -hmm. years ago and and amazon's largely considered as some of the best mm -hmm. in the business as far as managing metadata and doing mm -hmm. you know cross-promotional things and all of that stuff but i will tell you after i'd shopped for the humidifier on Amazon, mm -hmm. bought the humidifier on Amazon. Mm -hmm. I then proceeded to get all of this marketing for humidifier filters for every humidifier right. ever made. They were like, this guy's a huge humidifier fan, but they, they missed some key data yeah. in, in that process. So I want yeah. I want to the, think there, there are scenarios like that in the B2B world where oh, yeah. they're entirely missed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, like we, we moved um, we moved homes a number of years ago. And when you move uh, home, you you put it you list your home. Right. It goes into the MLS database. Right. Right. For those not in the U U.S., it's the multiple listing service. It's basically a, a big national database of homes that are on the market. And so it's basically public public knowledge, um, uh, public public data. And so the, you know, everybody starts contacting you. If you've put your home on the on the market recently, you get the, the fly by night mortgage companies and um, people trying to sell you loans and, and, uh, moving boxes and moving companies and landscapers and painters, and they all come out of the woodwork. Right. And so the only company that didn't contact us was, when we moved was our own bank. Uh, <laughs> I banked with them for, uh, uh, through a series of acquisitions for like 40 years. Oh, and why, why didn't they reach out to me? And, you know, I asked a banker friend, he said, well, they, they thought maybe that was creepy. I'm like, I've got a 40 year relationship with them. It's public knowledge that I'm moving. There's a sign in my yard. How creepy is it for them to reach out and say, Hey, we see you're moving. Can we offer you a mortgage, a home equity line? Can we print you new checks? Can we move the stuff in your safe deposit box? Can we, um, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, what an entirely missed opportunity for them. You know, the number one time when, when people move banks change banks is when they move or, or get married, married or divorced. And, what a, what a tragic missed opportunity for, for them to recognize that there was some life event for one of their long-term customers. Maybe they don't want me as a customer anymore. I, I don't know. Um, and uh, I was thinking how, how simple would it have been for them to hire 
you know, some high school programmer, give them a can of Red Bull and say, you know, match the customer, write an app to match the customer database with uh, with the MLS database and tell us who's mo- which of our customers are moving so we can offer them a, a mortgage, right? Yeah. So that's so it turns out there, the mortgage got subsumed by them. They probably lost a, you know, a tenth of a point or an eighth of a point on it. They could have gone direct to me. So yeah. anyway, um, you know, Missed a lot of missed opportunities there. Data monetization doesn't need to be rocket science, right? Well, and that's that's I think a pattern that we see all over the place is that people mm-hmm. think that everything does need to be rocket science, and they miss the stuff right in front of their faces to try yeah. to do some fancy. Everybody wants machine learning. I'm mm-hmm. like, we can't even do basic arithmetic with data a lot right. of the time, let alone machine learning. Mm-hmm. Let's just find the I, I, I call it the fruit on the ground. Let's just pick the stuff up. We don't even need to reach up and pull it off the tree. It's already right, right. sitting there for us. It's going to mm-hmm. go bad if we don't do yeah, something it- now. You know, a lot of companies say, well, you know, it's not our business, you know, monetizing data. It's not our thing. Um, it's a little bit outside of our, or we, we can't get the resources or the budget for it. Um, so one of the things we're doing at West Monroe is we're partnered with an investment bank and they will fund data monetization efforts for our clients. So we'll go in and do the work. The investment bank will pay for the work. And then the owner of the data, the client, will actually get a revenue stream from you know, from however it's it's monetized and without having to do any work other than give us access to their their systems. The data goes into a trust um, where we have rights to it and then they get a, a revenue stream and the investors get, get paid back on that as well. So it's, it's a great model. And that and that's actually in alignment with one of the, the topics that's been a common theme in recent episodes, mm-hmm. which is this alignment of incentives. And one of the things that I'm mm-hmm. always looking for with partners and business opportunities or what have you is when when both mm-hmm. sides have perfectly aligned incentives. So if you can create yeah. monetiz- monetization from data in a way that can benefit everybody and grow that pie, now mm-hmm. everybody involved is motivated to do the things together to to grow the pie as much as possible. When we can find those opportunities, it's, it's the best way of business you can get. Yep. Yep. For sure. So I want to expand. So we've talked a little bit about data as an asset, but there is, and and in the spirit of great transitions, talking about things that are, are of, uh, um, you know, top of mind and and popular Mm. terms these days, we just did an episode on buzzwords not too long ago, but this one is one that I think has been getting a lot of news lately is around digital currencies. And so data Mm. as an asset is one thing data as a currency is that a whole nother thing or is that just an evolution of the concept of data as an asset? Because that yeah. does actually create now mm-hmm. a diminished, like now data does have this kind of um, you know, scarcity where it, it represents something of, of tangible value. How does that impact? Like how does it's... Infonomics feel about that? Does it throw a monkey wrench into anything or, or how do you explain it? Um, well, let me make sure I know where you're going. So yes, companies will share and, and trade data mm-hmm. for goods and services or commercial, you know, uh, favorable commercial terms. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way to monetize. It's one of the, sure. you know, eight or nine patterns of data monetization that we've identified, um, is, is, uh, making data available in exchange for goods and services or commercial, uh, favorable commercial terms. Yeah. But are, are you talking about digital currencies? And that, that's not something I'm, I'm an expert in. I'm just curious from a a perspective, looking through a data as an asset Mm -hmm. lens, we have digital currencies and and it's less about the mechanics of how the currencies work or or what Mm -hmm. have you. But when we are thinking about the um, 
virtual side of a tangible asset, which I mean, fiat currencies as it is have okay. some representative function, but does it matter that this is represented purely by data? Is there a, you know, a, a evolution of data as an asset or does it really matter that it's digital versus uh, printed on paper? It's still a currency. It's still going to be, you know, tracked the same way we do dollars and cents uh, today. And, and, mm -hmm. and that the data value of it is not substantially different. That, I guess that's my, my question. Yeah, well, the thing is data can be duplicated. So unless you artificially restrict the the digital uh, instantiation of some tangible item, mm -hmm. then uh, you know, you're know you not able to maintain that, that, that price point. Unless you artificially maintain scarcity, then you can't maintain that price point. So one of the data valuation models that, that I developed um, the, the market value of data, you know, looks at that, which is, you know, how many, you have to kind of attenuate the price point versus the market size, right, mm -hmm. to optimize the revenue curve. And um, it, and so because data is this non-rivalrous, non-depleting asset, we can sell, we can create infinite copies of it, but we mm -hmm. don't because if we created infinite copies of it, its price point would, would devolve to zero, right? Yeah. So as with the, the, the revenue. So we want to maintain some kind of artificial um, scarcity for it. Uh, a great example is that of that is uh, where I worked at, at at Gartner, right? So, Gartner, you know, sells research reports. Um, obviously, they sell subscriptions too, but you can buy individual research reports. But they maintain a particular price point for right. those to make sure that it's um, it's something that's scarce and it's a premium for an organization to have access to that research report. You know, the newspapers are another story. They want to sell as many as possible. Um, but they still want to make you know revenue from them, so they sell them for a buck fifty or you know two bucks. Um, but that's a different you know a whole different similar similar model, but a different uh, a different curve. Right? Yeah, that's actually that's really interesting around yeah. the scare like the forced mm -hmm. scarcity of data assets that could be mm -hmm. theoretically copied. You know. Uh, it, it, you're you're bringing me back to like microeconomics yeah. and 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 my my old economics courses where where if you have infinite supply the price right. is necessarily going to go to mm -hmm. zero it's going to get pressure all the way downward yeah. but if you create scarcity then you will have right. a, a limitation there so that makes a so, lot of sense Anthony you might want to skip to the last chapter of my book which is about applying economic models to to data yeah so it, it's a, it was a bit you know theoretical but there were some uh, some prescriptive, you know, kind of recommendations that that came out of that work uh, that I did with some some colleagues, where, where we examined traditional economic models like supply and demand and productivity frontiers and marginal utility and so forth, and said, hey, you know, these models were all designed with traditional goods and services in mind. You know, we go back to your econ class. We talk about guns and butter, right? Yeah. And so. Um, Nobody had ever really thought about how do they apply to to data, right? And uh, so, so we gave that some thought and came up with some really interesting things like, um, you know, marginal utility, right? So we, we as humans feel marginal utility. You know, I drink one beer and, you know, that's great. I drink the second one, yeah, that's good. The third one, eh, maybe not so much. After so many, I, I start to have maybe negative, <laughs> <laughs> negative utility, right? That's, that's, we won't picture that. But um, do, do systems and computers who are the primary, increasingly the primary consumers of data, do they feel marginal utility the way humans do? No, no they don't. Right. So should that alter the way that w we as producers or publishers of data uh, architect these systems? Yeah, probably yes. 
And so um, some of our recommendations were how to, how, how to change the way that we architect data production, data collection, um, data distribution kinds of, kinds of systems. Um, and then I, I, I think I, I told you uh, before the show, I, I also teach uh, a course on infonomics at the University of Illinois' Geese Business School. And, um, uh, and one of the assignments I give the, the students is to uh, pick any economic model and you know apply apply it to data. And does it break down? Does it still work? Is it irrelevant? How would you alter it? And so I have dozens and dozens of really interesting papers from students on uh, on this, and I'm trying to get them them uh, them published. I had uh, a dozen students in my fir the first time I taught the class. I had 60 last year. I had 400 this year wow. in the class. So I've got a real a real real great body of uh, of, of papers from this this one assignment that I'd love to love to publish. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I I, yeah. I think about you know other representations of data. Like late, lately, uh, TikTok has been going crazy with with how many people are out there. Mm -hmm. It seems like everyone today wants to be a content producer and want to have um, you know just whatever they're doing mm -hmm. out there. And, and like we heard the same thing with Twitter back in the day too. It's like, does anybody right. really care what I had for lunch today? Apparently, they do. And so, mm -hmm. do we see that? people as data or, or our, our entertainment as data. Um, is that, is that changing anything? I think, I feel like there's so many things about data that you've captured, like with infonomics, but also just in our data space that aren't yeah. fundamentally changing there. i see very little fundamental change personally, but I see new manifestations of patterns that we've seen before. Do you see okay. anything truly novel well, like today? in how data is evolving? Um, again, I'm thinking about this more at an enterprise level. And, you know, most organizations have an entire department yeah. dedicated to uh, procuring office supplies, right? Yeah. Well, my, well, my pens for conference. I need to go to some more conferences. My pens are running out. Right? No kidding. Um, <laughs> but most companies don't have a single person dedicated to procuring data supplies. There is a wealth of data out there. Most companies obviously have a hard time generating value from their own data, but maybe one of the ways they could do that is by integrating it with external data sources. There are data sources from uh, you know, syndicated data providers like, you know, like the Dun & Bradstreet's and, and all down the line. There must be 5,000 or maybe 10,000 now companies that are selling data as a primary offering. Um, there are yeah. billions of websites that can be harvested, uh, content can be harvested from. There are uh, tens of millions of open data sets published by government organizations and NGOs and, and others. Um, there is... Uh, um, uh, social media content, right, that can be harvested as well. And so to not have an individual in your organization who is aware of all of these data sources and their potential um, to drive value for your organization is, mm -hmm. uh, I would say, irresponsible of any organization today to not have a full-time data data curator. Or, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the the point is well made, and I would imagine this audience of ours at, at Data Leadership Lessons would would be nodding mm -hmm. their head. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, quite, uh, quite mm -hmm. extremely right now. Um, so 
I do want in the in the few minutes that we have left, and mm -hmm. I know a lot of your your strategic work with West Monroe, you're you're going to be working with organizations of of some size and and some uh, resources to be doing you know pretty big things that that impact their their organizations. Mm -hmm. For those uh, out there that are in smaller organizations or maybe entrepreneurs, um, mm -hmm. do you have any advice for them on things they could be doing to? make the most of their data assets or some practices that would help them, um, you know, continue to be good stewards of the information that they have so that they can capitalize yeah. on it when they have uh, an ability to. You know, almost any startup today is, is capturing, you know, some source of data from the transactions or the observations or, or their own activity. Um, and so I would encourage them to consider the, uh, the range of ways that that data could be generating value for them and bake that into their business model. So even if it isn't really a core part of the business model, make it so, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there, there are examples of companies that, well, there's one company I worked with that was building a an analytic database. Uh, and uh, they, they briefed me while I was a gardener and I said, well, this is great. Everybody else and their brother's building a, a, a bigger, better, faster analytic database. And they said, well, ours is great. I said, well, how do you know how great it is? And they they said, well, because we've we've ingested uh, we ingest BitTorrent traffic. I said, well, uh, wonderful. I said, how much BitTorrent traffic do you ingest? They said, all of it. I said, what? I said, you you know you have data about every application and software and music you know track that's being shared illicitly over over BitTorrent. They're like, yeah, we sure do. I said, you know that data would be more valuable to the producers of that content than your 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 little database. Would, would be. And they, they actually pivoted. It's a company called True Optic. They're now one of the uh, top, over the top OTT um, data providers. And, um, you know, with clients like Disney and CBS and, and others now who, who are saying, yeah, we want to know when people are illegally trading uh, copies of our, our TV shows and movies and where they are and where they're moving from, not, not specifically which individuals, but they want to know where there's unmonetized demand for their products and services. So, um, you know, think about the ways that you can use data um, in, in alternative ways. If you need help, reach out to, you know, a consultant like me just to, just to ideate for a little bit. Um, I run workshops on this stuff and, and bake it into your business model. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and that's that gets the wheels turning because it is mm -hmm. something where the data that you encounter in whatever you've started your business to do could lead mm. to entirely new business opportunities that nobody else yeah. might see because of your unique vantage point. So that's great advice. Yeah. Right. We're working with a, um, a pharmaceutical wholesaler and uh, we, we ran through some, did some workshops with them and generated a few dozen ideas on how to better leverage their data. Three of the top ideas, we run them through kind of a feasibility analysis, economic feasibility, legal, ethical, operational, technical, and determine that the three top ideas, um, if they implemented them, would generate a revenue stream of uh, 75 to $100 million a year. And this is something that's validated by their their CFO. So there, there's a lot of untapped ways to leverage your, your data. Um, a lot of patterns that companies aren't considering. They don't even have a data monetization function in their organization. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where I, I enjoy helping, helping companies. Absolutely. And, and so I, one more question for you on sure. to kind of flip the other side of the coin from strategic opportunities to take mm -hmm. a business for those folks out there in the audience that may be earlier in their career or trying to figure out how they create a career in data, 
what are the kinds of gaps as you look at across the entirety of enterprises out there? What's, what kind of patterns do you see in terms of where are those gaps? Where are the needs for those businesses in terms of capable people to deliver these big ideas that, that are going to continue, I think, to transform how our organizations work and, and drive value from data? Yeah, I, I think obviously data science is a big, big area, but data scientists aren't always the most you know cr creative ones are coming up with those ideas. You know, they'll def definitely execute on them, but I wouldn't count on your on most data scientists to be the ones who are who are ideating around around data. Um, it takes somebody with an understanding of the the marketplace, the industry, maybe other industries. You know, I often get asked by by clients, you know, what are others in our our industry doing? And I, you know, my flippant response is, why do you want to be in second place? Why not look at what others in other industries are doing and adapt those ideas to your own your your own business? Um, but yeah, having somebody who's creative, heads up, um, innovative. Uh, is, is really, really important. Having somebody who's thinking about the economics of data and, and data as a, as an asset, what does that mean to the organization? Um, you know, I call all my graduate, all my graduating students, we call them uh, um, economists instead of economists, right? And so, you know, folks like that can really help an organization think through the variety of ways to leverage data innovatively, but also um, architect it appropriately for, for the future. Fantastic. And I think yeah. that's that's great advice for anybody who is out there. And if you don't already have a copy of, of Infonomics, you should definitely uh, pick one up. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's something that will help you yeah. reframe how you think about data and, and, and plugs in a lot. It, it fills in a lot of the connective tissue, the gaps right. between where a lot of deep uh, study is. And, and I think that's, you know, yeah. part of the reason uh, why it's been so successful. And, and, you know, you know, Doug, before, yeah. before we go, we are, are just about out of time, but, you know, I just want to thank you too, from a fellow data management practitioner for the contributions that you've made over many years to this space. You as well. And it's been, it's been awesome to getting to know you and, and talking with you. And um, again, you know, say hi to, to the, the gang over at West Monroe, but I, I definitely appreciate how you're continuing to try to push forward uh, change in this industry and help, you know, bring folks. I, I'm so happy for you on, on the, the um, U of I um, educational side. I think that's something that yeah. is, is really important. So I appreciate that. I really appreciate that, that Anthony. Thanks. And, and I was going to offer to any of your um, executive listeners who are interested in a copy of the book, they can reach out to me and um, we have, we, we make copies of available to chief data officers and, and, and folks like that. So um, Right. Fantastic. And and we will certainly um, include the, the relevant links uh, in the show notes. And so, um, you know, Doug, thanks again. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, I really, really My appreciate pleasure. it. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thanks. And thank you all for joining us today. You'll find more information and links in the show notes. Dive deeper with my book at dataleadershipbook.com and use promo code AlgmanDL at the Dataversity Online Training Center for 20% off your first purchase. Please remember to follow Data Leadership Lessons on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review and help others find us. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 